Thanks so much, David. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you today. I hope you're doing well. Please uh, pull out your sermon notes or turn on your app and find your sermon notes there because today we're going to talk about the ascent of the Antichrist. Sounds like a nice light topic for us today, right? But you know, the Bible predicts a satanic superman who will splash onto the world scene and rule the world for the last three and a half years before the second coming of Christ. He plays a central role in the prophetic future as described in end time prophecy. There's more than a hundred passages in the Word of God that describe his origin, his character, his career, and also the doom of this final world ruler. Clearly, God wants us to know something about the coming prince of darkness. He's referred to in Scripture by many different names, sort of like aliases of a criminal. He's called the beast in the book of Revelation. Most of you have heard of the mark of the beast. But the name that he is most commonly associated with is simply the Antichrist. That term anti means in place of or against. He will be the arch enemy and the ultimate opponent of Jesus Christ our Lord. He'll be the antithesis of Jesus Christ. Not only will he oppose our Lord, he will be a pretender who will set himself up as the true Messiah himself. He'll pretend to be. He'll seem to be. He'll be the devil's counterfeit, in other words. And today we learn about him from Daniel chapter 8. So if you haven't already, please grab a Bible and open up to Daniel chapter 8. If you're taking the Bible on the chair rack in front of you, it's page 745. Daniel chapter 8. And I'm calling this message the ascent of the Antichrist. And that word ascent refers to his rise to world leadership. Chuck Swindoll describes it like this. This man will emerge after the rapture, probably to calm the chaotic waters troubled by the unexpected departure of so many Christians. He will be primed and ready to speak. He will stand before not only a nation but a world and will win their approval. Like Hitler, he will emerge on a scene of such political and economic chaos that the people will see him as a man with vision, with pragmatic answers, and power to unite the world. So that is our subject today because he is largely the focus of Daniel 8. As I said last week, the second half of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, are filled with amazing prophecies where God speaks to Daniel in a supernatural way about what's going to happen in the future, what the future holds. So with that in mind, let's take a look now at Daniel 8, verse 1. And we begin by reading about Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. And the chapter begins by describing the vision at Susa. So this takes place in the third year of King Belshazzar. So it's two years later than the vision we read about last week in chapter 7. It takes place when Daniel's about 60 years old. Babylon is still securely the world power. And God sent the angel Gabriel to give his servant Daniel this very broad sweep of Gentile history as it relates to his own people, the Israelites. So we begin in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. So this is his second vision. 
And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. If you and I were able to read the original languages the Bible was written in, we would notice this shift here at verse 8. It's a shift from the Aramaic language, the Gentile language of that day, to the Hebrew language, the language of the Jews. You see, God is going to zero in now, and he notes it in the change of languages. He's going to zero in on his own people and his plans for them in the future. So Daniel was transported via a vision to Susa, the winter capital of Babylon, later the winter capital of the Persians. Those of you who like maps might like to see this. We'll see where we're talking about. So here's Susa, straight east of Babylon. If you've been a soldier in Iraq in this area, then you can picture this. Jerusalem is farther to the west. And so this is Israel, Iraq over here. Um, from the book of Esther, we know that King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. From the book of Nehemiah, we see that he served King Artaxerxes in the citadel of Suda, Susa. And by the way, tradition says that the prophet Daniel was buried there. So this is an important city, biblically. Those of you who have served in Iraq, you've been very near Susa. By the way, the ancient city of Susa would be in what modern country today? Ge geography, trivia, that's Persia today, just across the Iraqi border. Okay. But the Medes and Persians had not yet conquered Babylon, that empire, so all of, all of that is yet to come when Daniel receives this vision. Let's keep reading now at verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but only one, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So Daniel sees in his vision a ram with two horns. The ram with two horns. We don't need to speculate about who this represents the, because in verse 20 we're told that the ram represents the Medes and the Persians, <clears throat> the empire that seceded the Babylonian Empire. It's also interesting to read the ram had two horns that were high, but one was higher than the other. In the Medo-Persian Empire, they were unequal partners. The Persians were a much mightier people than the Medes were, and they eventually dominated the empire in a big way. So that's what Daniel sees in the beginning of his vision. The ram is pushing in these three directions, representing the direction that the empire expanded. And next we come to verse 5, which says this, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, 
and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. This is one of the most amazing passages I've ever read in the prophetic word of God. It's an action-filled passage. First Daniel sees this weird-looking two-horned ram, and then he sees this goat come in from the west, the goat from the west, and the, the goat comes charging against the ram. And normally you would think certainly the ram would win in a battle like that, but not in this case. In this case, the goat triumphs. And if we look down at verse 21, we see that Daniel is told what this represents. The goat represents the Greek empire. And we know from history that this conspicuous horn represents Alexander the Great. And it's really an amazing description of Alexander's conquests and his empire. In fact, six specific prophecies are made here about him. I want to tick them off for you. First, he came from the west. Greek, Greece is west of the Middle East. Remember, everything is seen from the perspective of Israel, from Jerusalem. That's the center of the world from God's perspective. Second, he conquered with unusual speed. Verse 5 says he came across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's exactly how Alexander the Great conquered the world of his day with tremendous speed. History tells us that Greek, Greece set a record for conquering the known world. In just 12 short years, they conquered the entire civilized world without losing a single battle. He swept across the known world in a remarkable way. Third, this empire had a notable ruler. Of course, that's Alexander the Great. He is the conspicuous horn here. Some translations use the word prominent horn. Either way, this is a, a great description of Alexander. We read that when he was growing up, his mother taught him that he was the descendant of the Greek gods Achilles and Hercules. And so no wonder this kid had such a big ego. Fourth, there was great hatred between the Greeks and the Medo-Persians. And that's, I think, why verse 6 speaks of the great wrath of the goat from the west toward the ram. Great hatred. Fifth, the Greeks conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. See, the Greeks and the Medo-Persians had a famous war with some of the most famous battles in history that were fought between them. And I'm confident that some of you have studied the, some of those battles in war college. And sixth, notice that verse 8 says, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up these four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. At the end of Alexander the Great's life, the Greek empire was divided between his four generals. We talked about that last week. This fourfold division of the kingdom of Greece was pictured in the first vision that Daniel had in chapter 7, by the leopard with the four heads. Alexander's four generals divide up the kingdom, each ruling over one part of it. And so this is just an amazing, amazing prophecy. It describes the rise in, and the character of the Greeks under Alexander the Great with incredible precision, more than a hundred years before it happened. And by the way, the this description of Alexander is so vivid that when he approached Jerusalem to capture it shortly before his death, Josephus writes in his history that the high priest showed this very passage to 
Alexander the Great, and he recognized himself in it, and because of that, he spared the city of Jerusalem and didn't destroy it. This is such a remarkable prophecy, this passage, that some people, and I'll use the term scholars loosely, probably, I don't mean that as an insult, but they're really more academics. They don't believe that this is a supernatural book at all. So when they read these things that Daniel wrote down and how precisely they're fulfilled, they really only have one option. They say, well, Daniel couldn't have written this, so somebody later, after these events took place, must have written it. But the truth is, I believe Daniel did write this, and he wrote it hundreds of years before these events took place. We have the testimony of Christ himself to back that up in Matthew 24. But some scholars can't admit that because then they would have to admit that this book has a supernatural origin, that it comes from God. And that is exactly, by the way, what I believe, okay? And I believe that with all my heart. I have complete confidence that this is the Word of God. And I don't say that with blind faith. There is solid evidence for that statement. The hundreds of fulfilled prophecies are just one of the reasons why we believe that it is the inspired Word of God. But we also look to archaeology. We look to its power to change lives. We look to the testimony of witnesses, including Jesus himself. More recently, we, we could look to the uh, discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, now decades ago, but the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran in the land of Israel uh, have determined that this was written before the events took place. These are, beloved, these are the very words of God. And this is an amazing, amazing prophecy. Well, what happens next? Let's go to verse 9. It's the emergence of the little horn. And one of those four horns, out of that horn came a little horn. I want you to listen to this description of him in beginning at verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So earlier we saw that the great horn on the goat was broken off, replaced by the four horns, four generals. And from one of those generals, from his descendants, arose a ruler who had a special place of prominence. And this man is the one who ruled over the area that we now know as Israel the land promised by God to his own people. And this man is known or was known as Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. So he minted a coin in his day when he was a ruler with his image on it with the words Antiochus Epiphanes. What you need to understand is that that's the title that he gave to himself. And Epiphanes means God manifest. So what he called himself was, on hey, I'm Antiochus, the God. Diabolical arrogance was his nature. He started off quite insignificantly, but he became the most diabolical ruler of his day. After trying to conquer the world, being stopped by the Romans, he turned his anger and his fury against Jerusalem and he sacked the city. He killed some 800, excuse me, some 80,000 Jews and sold another 40,000 Jews into slavery. Antiochus also decided that he was going to replace Judaism 
with Greek worship and Greek culture. He forbid observing the Sabbath. He forbid reading the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he tried to burn every copy of them that he could. Uh, The Jews were forbidden from practicing anything Jewish on penalty of death. For example, two Jewish mothers during his reign were devout in their faith, and they decided that they were going to go ahead and have their son circumcised. But when Antiochus heard of it, he killed those two babies and hung them around their mother's necks and marched those women through the streets of Jerusalem to make an example out of them. So he was an evil man. Now, the Jewish people, both ancient and even today, love puns. And sometimes they love insulting puns. And so they called him not Antiochus Epiphanes. They coined the name Antiochus Epimenes. It rhymed, but it means Antiochus the madman. Because he was crazy. He killed other rulers to secure his own kingdom. That's described in verse 10. He was crazy in his hatred of the Jewish people. Next, we keep reading more about him beginning at verse 11. It says, he or it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. It became great also is translated in some versions, he exalted himself greatly over the prince. One of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did was he blasphemed God, which is what I think it means when it says he exalted himself over God. He was an accurate fulfillment of this prophecy we're reading. Now, the worst period of his persecution of the Jews came in 168 B.C. when he returned from his defeat in Alexandria, Egypt. When he came back, To Jerusalem, on his way back from Egypt, he ordered his generals to seize seize Jerusalem on a Sabbath. And then he set up an idol to Zeus, the god Zeus, in the temple in Jerusalem. And then he proceeded to do what is often called the desolation of the sanctuary, the desolation. He defiled the altar inside the temple in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on it which meant that the Jews had to stop their sacrifices in the temple because it had been so disgraced, so desecrated. And so we keep reading in verse 12. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression, the desolation, and it will throw truth to the ground and it or he will act and prosper. And Tyus Epiphanes was an unbelievable persecutor of the Jews and a desecrator of their faith. And according to verse 12, he seemed to prosper. Doesn't it drive you crazy when the wicked sometimes seem to prosper? How those who oppose God seem to flourish at times? And we're like, God, why don't you just wipe them out? I know you have the capacity to do that. You have the power to destroy evil. God, why don't you just smoke them? You know what God says, I think? I think God says, don't worry, I know what I'm doing, trust me. And God had a way of dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes, even though for a while he appeared to be the winner. He seemed to be the one who was prospering. We'll come to that. And for Daniel's sake, then, Daniel's allowed to listen in 
on the conversation between two of God's holy angels. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So one angel was asking the other angel, How long is he going to let this go on? How long uh, will you let the temple be desecrated like this? And the answer came back for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Remembered in Hebrew way of thinking, the day began in the evening at sunset. And there's two ways actually to understand what he was saying here. It could be 2,300 days or 2,300, so half that, or, or half that days because there's two sacrifices per day, one sacrifice in the evening and one in the morning. And I think the preferable way is to compute this as 1,150 days, which is three years and 70 days, because that's how long the sacrifices were interrupted by Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, God used a man to destroy Antiochus. This story isn't found in the Bible, but it's one of my favorites because it explains a special celebration of the Jews that exists even to this day. This is the background of what is called to this day the Feast of Dedication. You say, well, I know about the Feast of Passover. I know about the Feast of Trumpets. I know about the Feast of Pentecost. But what's the Feast of Dedication? What's that about? Well, the Feast of Dedication is today what we call Hanukkah. Here's the story in a nutshell. One day during the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, there was a Jewish priest serving in the temple in Jerusalem who was greatly grieved over the way the worship in the temple had been stopped by Antiochus, how it had been ruined. So when Antiochus sent the order for the Jews in Jerusalem to bow down before the altar of the Greek god Jupiter, he had had enough. He was done. So this old priest refused. In fact, he was so incensed by that order that he killed the next Jew who stepped forward to obey that order. And he also killed the officer, the army officer, who made the Jews bow down. And that was the beginning of what's called the Maccabean Revolt. When that old priest died shortly after that, he passed the torch of liberty and revolution on to his son Judas Maccabees also known as Judas the Hammer. Gives you an idea of his personality. He led the fight for independence for the Jewish people and eventually won the victory over Antiochus. And so Judas goes to the temple, and his idea is, I'm going to cleanse the temple from this desecration. So the first thing he wants to do is to find oil to light the lamps in the temple. And according to tradition, the ceremony to cleanse the temple would take eight days. But Judas Maccabees only found one jar of oil, and he knew it wasn't going to be enough oil to last for eight days. However, as the story goes, that small amount of oil did last all eight days. Miraculously, it was a wonderful miracle. And to this day, the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, and they celebrate that during the month of December. And for each of those eight days, they light an additional candle on the menorah. So the first day, one candle, the second day, two, and so on, through the eight days of Hanukkah. 
It's a sign, a remembrance of the victory and deliverance God gave to them. And it all goes right back to this period of history that's foretold in, in Daniel chapter 8. By the way, in John 10, we read about Jesus attending the Feast of Dedication in his day. And so Daniel saw a vision of these things more than 100 years before they took place. And now we come to verse 15 and to the second half of this chapter. The first half of the chapter is the vision. The second half is the interpretation of it. The interpretation or the vision interpreted relative to the end of time. And we begin with the interpretation of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Interesting that God would send his angel to explain the vision to Daniel. Let's read that beginning at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Very common reaction to an angelic visitation, that kind of fear. We continue. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So this is fascinating. Gabriel comes and he tells Daniel that this vision has relevance to the time of the end. In fact, he repeats that three times in this short conversation to the time of the end. Now, we know that this prophecy was partially fulfilled in this man Antiochus Epiphanes more than 2,000 years ago. And we know historically that he fulfilled many of these things. But Gabriel speaks to us across the centuries and he tells us, listen, no, there's more. This also speaks about the time of the end. Listen, just as Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power in his day, the Bible tells us there will be a final world leader who will do the same. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews, so will this final world leader. And just as Antiochus Epiphanes stopped the sacrifice and desecrated the temple, so will this final world leader. The Bible tells us there will be a final world ruler who will come. And he will exercise his career at the end of the age just before Christ returns to rule and reign in great glory. And the Bible tells us that when this man comes, he will persecute the Jewish people. And he will be seen by much of the world as a great winner. He will put an end to the sacrifice in the temple. He will desecrate the temple. Beloved, his coming is certain. It will happen one day. Let's continue with the interpretation of the ram and the goat, beginning at verse 20. Verse 20 says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So again, as we said earlier, Alexander is that horn that was broken and replaced by the four others. 
So he died suddenly at just 33 years of age from a disease. He was succeeded by his four generals, none of which had the same power that he did. And next we read that a master of intrigue is going to arise. Listen to this description of him beginning at verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed, succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken." but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Notice that those words, he understands riddles, the bold-faced man who understands riddles. It's also translated in some translations. He's a master of intrigue. And the idea here is that he's a problem solver. He has answers to problems. And what's fascinating about these verses is that they are true both of Antiochus Epiphanes, but also of the Antichrist. You see, there is a curious phenomenon in biblical prophecy where God will speak both to a near fulfillment, but also to a far fulfillment, a distant one. We call it a double prophecy, and there's many examples of them throughout the Bible. Here's a diagram that illustrates this for you. The prophet is the little guy down there with a the staff, and he's looking out across time, and he sees a near fulfillment, and then there's a gap of time, and, and there's also a far fulfillment that is intended in that prophecy. But there's a time gap between the two, but he can't see them from his perspective. Usually the near fulfillment is a partial fulfillment, and the distant fulfillment is a more complete fulfillment. And what we see here is that Antiochus is the near fulfillment. He is a preview of the final world leader that is sometimes called the Antichrist, the far fulfillment. Both of these fulfillments were future in Daniel's day. But in our day, the character and actions of Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadow the Antichrist who will appear on the stage of world history in a time yet future. He's sort of like the movie trailer to give us a preview of what to expect when that final man of sin comes on the scene. And then da Gabriel says it again. He says, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. In other words, this not only deals with the immediate fulfillment near Daniel's day with Antiochus, but also to the end times. And listen, beloved, I can't tell you when this will be fulfilled, and I certainly can't tell you who, but I've lived long enough now to see several different people who Christians through the ages have claimed, well, that guy must be the Antichrist, or maybe that's him. Probably some of you have as well. And some of the ones I recall hearing about were Henry Kissinger and the Pope, actually several popes, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and Mikhail Gorbachev and Barack Obama and Donald Trump, just to name a few. 
But we don't know who he is, who it will be. Yet who knows, this man may very well be alive today. In my bones, I just feel like we're close enough to the end that he must be alive. He's probably been born. But I tell you this, one way that he will be seen by the world is as someone who is a success. He's a winner. Everything he touches, metaphorically speaking, turns to gold. This world leader is coming, and when he comes, he will oppose God and God's people on every hand. Well, I want to jump ahead now on the sermon notes, and I want to survey ten key facts about the Antichrist. Because again, like I said earlier, there's many passages that describe him, and I think this will help us understand him a bit better. The Antichrist key facts. Number one, he will appear in the end of time of Israel's history. We just looked at that one in Daniel 8:17. On your notes, each of the, these 10 points has a scripture passage. Second, he will make a peace treaty, a peace treaty with Israel. The Antichrist is going to come on the scene as someone who is a great peacemaker. And if you think about it, what does our world want today more than someone who can bring peace? The world is clamoring for a solution to terrorism, for example. The world longs for an end to violence and war. So that's going to be his platform, peace and prosperity. He will come on the scene promising peace. And part of that will be, I think, to make a treaty with Israel where he's going to allow Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And third, he will die near the middle of the tribulation and then recover. Revelation 13.3 says, One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as it followed the beast. By the way, some people believe that this means he's going to fake his death and then fake his resurrection, but whichever way it is, number four, the whole world will be amazed and follow him. Fifth, Antichrist will invade the land of Israel and desecrate that temple he allowed to be rebuilt. Sixth, he's going to set himself up inside the temple as God. He's going to demand people worship him. He's going to say, I am God, worship me. Seventh, he will rule the world, the world politically, religiously, and economically for three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation. Eighth, he will rule, he will require all to receive his mark, the 666, the mark of the beast, in order to buy and sell. Ninth, he will fight against Christ and suffer total defeat. He's going to draw the nations into the land of Israel for this major battle against Jesus Christ, and he will be completely defeated. And finally, he will be cast into the lake of fire. So that's an overview of some of the key events, major events in his life. Much, much more that we could cover. We don't have time for it. But let's go back now to the last verse of Daniel 8. And that's where we read about Daniel's response to the vision in verse 27. Verse 27 says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So look at Daniel's reaction to all of this. He got sick. He became very emotional. Some translations suggest that he even fainted. I think what it's saying is he was immensely grieved that his people, the Jewish people, would live under such persecution 
and that this man who came against them would have such seeming success, at least for a time. So on your sermon notes, there's also a section called Five Signs of the End Times. And I'm sorry, but I'm not going to have time to get to that one today. I plan to come back to that, Lord willing, in one of our later weeks in the book of Daniel. But let's look again now at verse 27. Notice that Daniel went about the king's business. He didn't let these troubling prophecies, in other words, keep him from doing his duty. He was sick for some days, but then he went back to his duty. And listen, our interest in prophecy should make us more effective in the king's business, not less effective. If anyone's interest in Bible prophecy makes him less interested in, in kingdom business, then something is wrong, something's not quite right. Knowing what God is going to do in the future, knowing that the time is short for us, this should give us this urgency about doing the king's business right now and right here. And then finally, notice at the end of verse 27, Daniel says, I, and I did not understand it. But we understand a lot more about this today because we have the New Testament, which has revealed so much more to us. We have the companion book of the book called the book of Revelation that, that lines up a lot with the book of Daniel. So we have all of that to give us more understanding. We also have history we can look back on that Daniel didn't know of yet that also is added to our understanding. And I would even suggest that we live today in the time of the end when these visions have been unsealed. All right, so let me conclude today with just a few take, quick takeaways. Four next steps. Here's the first one. The fact of fulfilled prophecy is an amazing testimony to the divine source of the Bible. I will trust it. Therefore, trust it. One of the big reasons, not the only reason, but one of the big reasons I trust God's word so much is the fact of fulfilled prophecy. That's the first thing. In John 14, Jesus said this, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. Isaiah wrote the same kind of things repeatedly. One of the reasons God reveals the end to us before it happens is so that we can believe him, so that we can trust him. Next step two, God warns us about a last day's world ruler. I will anticipate him. I will anticipate him. God doesn't give us this information about the Antichrist just to sort of excite our imagination. He doesn't tell us so much about him to give us some kind of a spiritual thrill. He wants his people to be ready for him, to know what to look for. Now, my view, my interpretation of Scripture is that as Christians, we're living in the church age and that we're going to be raptured before this world ruler takes over. But listen, there will be a group of people alive during the tribulation who come to faith and they will need to know what's going to happen, what to expect. And God tells them ahead of time exactly what to expect so they can be prepared for him, so that no one submits to him. God also tells us ahead of time so that we can, I think, so we can recognize the precursors to his arrival. Things such as globalism, one world government, one world economy, one world religion, which are all in the works today. And as we see these things getting closer, it allows us to know the rapture of the church, therefore, is getting very close as well. By the way, I'm excited when I 
read some of these things because God's word says his people are on the winning side. And that excites me. But I don't think that's the only response God wants us to have. It should also motivate us to have a concern for the lost world around us. Think of all that they are going to experience in the tribulation, this period that we've been reading about. Let this give us an urgency to reach the world with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came to rescue us from sin and and eternal death, but also from the crisis that is coming to the earth. Next step three, the future is in God's hands, therefore I will trust God's plans. I will trust God's plans. I just want to remind you of something. History, when seen from a biblical perspective, is simply God's unfolding plan for the ages. God has a plan, and some of it has already been completed. Some of it has yet to be completed. But God has this unfolding plan for the ages. He's sovereign over all that's going on in our world. But, beloved, history not only has this grand panorama of kingdoms and empires and rulers and all of that, History is also very personal. Because God has a story that he is writing in our individual lives. And when we see God's care and concern for the big picture of history, it awakens us to his care and concern that he has in our individual lives. And how he wants to work in and through each one of us. Beloved, trust him. Trust his plans for the future. And then finally... The way to be ready for the second coming of Christ is by trusting in the Jesus of the first coming. Therefore, I will receive him as Savior. Receive Jesus as Savior. See, that's how we get ready for the second coming of Christ. You don't need to go shopping for an Antichrist survival kit. (laughs) You don't need to build a bunker in your basement, but if you do, you know, go ahead and let me know about that, just in case. Just, Just kidding. No, the real way to get ready for Jesus in his second coming is to take a look at what he did in his first coming. Take a look at the cross, in other words. Take a look in the Bible at the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did at the cross. Because it was at the cross that Jesus paid a penalty for our sin. It was a penalty that we could never pay, so he stepped in and took it for us. It was at the cross that Jesus took upon himself the judgment for our sin. But it was also after the cross at the empty tomb that he demonstrated that he triumphed over death, over sin, once and for all. And friends, that's why we come to the table of the Lord each month and we remember these things, we celebrate these things. We give thanks for what he has accomplished for us.